Morning. Lovely, lovely. That's one of my favorite hymns. I love that hymn. Perfect. Well, you get to be a recipient of my Prezi, my Prezi presentations that I like to do with my students. So hopefully it'll all work out. Well, um, over the last couple of years, God has blessed Sean and me with two very, very special treasures. Can you guess what they are? That's right. That's right. All the grandmas in one accord, grandchildren. And there is something very unique and special about being a grandparent. Um, Sean and I find that when we're with them, we're a little more relaxed, a little more playful, and just smitten with everything they do, even when they get in trouble. I don't know why that is. But although we relish those times of being with them, these little blessings in our lives, we also find that we're praying a little bit harder these days as we anticipate that the culture um, that they're going to grow up in um, is increasingly aggressive. Um, I want you, they're really vying for their attention. In fact, I'll read to you um, something that one, a person once said. He's one of the aggressors, and he's speaking against Christianity in that context, context. And he was quoted as saying, if we can't plant the seeds of doubt in our children, or if we can plant the seeds of doubt in our children, then change is always just one generation away, right? And that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But you know what? It's also biblical. It's also biblical. Um, It's nothing new. Biblically speaking, uh, we understand that it really does only take one generation to forget or to reject God and his word. And thankfully, though this new generation that we're going to be learning about today they actually were the generation that, uh, that uh, was faithful. We know from Judges uh, 2-7 that they served the Lord in the new land, all of the days of Joshua, and even all the days of the elders who lived out Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But once that generation died out, according to verse 10 in the book of Judges, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. How is that possible? How is that possible under the leadership of Joshua that that happened? Well, possibly um, what could have happened, because it's very sad, really. It's possible if Joshua and, the new, that the, Joshua and the new generation had just failed to teach the younger generation the great lessons of when God brought them out of Egypt, um, out of the house of slavery, who did great signs in their sight, preserving them all the way, right, to the promised land. That sobering truth about the generation that walked away, it drives me, ladies. It drives me. I have so much passion. It has personally motivated me for years how important it is to invest in the next generation. As a mother... As a professor, as a grandmother, as a friend, um, I make it my aim. My whole ministry is kind of wrapped up in that way. And like Psalm 78 encourages, as God's people, we are responsible to plant God's seeds of truth in, in, in them so that the next generation might learn and they might know Yahweh and his mighty works. And, that the, and if the Lord should will to save them, by his grace, that they might arise and recount Yahweh's mighty works to their children. 
so that they should learn and understand God and not forget his deeds, but rather observe his commandments. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has a similar concern. He does. He has a similar concern. He desires to impress upon the next generation a similar message before they enter the promised land. And one of those desires is that this new generation would learn and that they would understand from their past history. Um, You know, the past history of the forefathers, the previous generation, and how they should keep that history clearly in mind and to understand exactly what is at stake should, like the previous generation, um, what is at stake is them being tempted to fall back into the peril of unbelief, right? Like the previous generation who walked before them. And when it ended up happening, they perished in the wilderness, right? I mean, that's a huge consequence. They never got to see the promised land. How sad is that? But you know what? God gives the believer today a similar message. Just listen as I read Hebrews 3 to you, 11 to 19. Feel free to turn there if you like, but I'll read it to you and just listen and take this in because um, the, the writer there uses Israel's history as a backdrop. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast uh, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they provoked me. For who provoked God when they heard? Was it not Israel? Right? Was it not Israel? Did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. When we disobey God, whether that be in thought word or deed, we, like the Israelites, because you always like to blame everything on the Israelites, right? But we, like the Israelites, question God's nature, who he is, his character, right? And when we do, we fall peril to the sin of unbelief. And so with that in mind, I, I really pray that the next 45 minutes or so that I'm able to invest in all of you by encouraging you towards loving good deeds and helping you to guard against the sin of unbelief as we learn and we understand together the redemptive history, really, of our gracious and merciful God who is preparing his particular people to the Jewish nation to finally enter into the promised land. They're finally entering in. (laughs) We got there, right? And so so go ahead and open up to the book of Deuteronomy if you haven't already. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of a historical setting and background because it's important to kind of keep this in your mind as we dive into the text. But at this point in Israel's history, Moses is about 120 years old, okay? That's pretty amazing to kind of wrap your mind around. He's 120, he's nearing the end of his life, and Joshua has already been appointed to be his successor. It's also important to note that Deuteronomy is really nothing more than just a series of farewell messages. This is an older generation investing in the younger, okay? So it's a series of 
farewell messages. He's, he's giving these messages to the second generation, the, the millennials of their time, if you will. They're all under 40 at this point. They've all were born in the wilderness, um, and either born or just reared in the wilderness. And thirdly, Deuteronomy is really just a covenant renewal. Think of it like that, between God and this second generation. Moses is calling the second generation of Israel to trust the Lord and to be obedient to his covenant that was made at Sinai. And in chapter 1, Moses will find that he's exhorting this new generation to remember their history, so important, which of course includes Israel's rebellion against the Lord, which of course brought devastating consequences. He also reminds the new generation of the Lord's faithfulness in giving victory over their enemies. And in addition, Moses calls the second generation to take the land that God had promised by oath to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses doesn't just look back at their history. He does something else. He also looks forward towards an anticipated um, obedience. He looks ahead at what would happen in the near and distant future should the generation fail to obey. So that's just a little bit of historical setting. It's good for us to know that. But go ahead and follow along. I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suth, between Paran and Tophel, and Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it happened in the 40th year, on the seventh day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that Yahweh had commanded him to give to them. After he struck down Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Eshtarath and Edri, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying... Now, according to Moses in Deuteronomy verse 1, the second generation is now encamped in the central rift valley, and that's to the east of the Jordan, uh, Jordan River. Uh, Numbers 36 verse 13 refers us to the place of, it's called the plains of Moab. Um, And according to Deuteronomy 1 verse 3, this encampment takes place entirely in this one location over about a month of time. And really, it's here that God begins to instruct this new generation who are about to inherit the land, which is just a great illustration, really, of God's patience, right? He's giving them a second chance. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that first picture that you see there, um, there you go. That first picture, Todd Bolin took that. Um, he's one of the, our professors of Old Testament. He took that when he was in Israel. And he says, this is a picture of the plains of Moab where the new generation was encamped. And what I want you to notice in the background, see that mountain range? That's Mount Nebo. That's where Moses was buried. So it's good to connect the land with the scripture, you know, so you can see it for yourself. But going back to Deuteronomy 1, verse 1, uh, Moses, notice how Moses opens up with, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. From trusted commentaries on what kind of words Moses spoke to the second generation, most agree that Moses could be referring to the specific stipulations um, in the covenant document. That's that's what the Hebrew word means, debar, like in the strictest sense. 
um, individual stipulations, but it can also be understood in a broader way, meaning it can also include exhortations that Moses gave these people outside of the covenant document. And so this gives it more of a sermon-esque style. And I wonder if you noticed that when you were reading through it, that you just kind of sensed that he was giving a bit of a sermon through uh, what you read. Um, Abner Chow, uh, who I work with, but he's also one of our elders here at Grace Community, he commented on this particular verse, and he says, quote, that this nuance provides a corrective on how one might view the nature of Deuteronomy. This book is not merely a list of rules or even technical covenant content. To be sure, the book does contain that, right? But it contains much more than that. Moses' words are sermonic, and they're explanatory in nature. Deuteronomy is a book that informs people not only of the covenant, but of the theology and the principles and the workings and the worldview that the covenant brings, end quote. And so here we've got Moses. He's God's chosen leader, and he's investing in this next generation not to forget by speaking his last words in a series of sermons before the new generation enters the promised land. And he spoke them to all of Israel in the Jordan wilderness, all that the Lord wanted him to speak. And these words that Moses spoke, they help us to learn and understand something really important from Israel's history, that God is the initiator of these words, right? He is the initiator. So what does that mean? They come with great authority, do they not? They come with great authority, and so that helps us to learn and understand that God is the sovereign one, and we are, they were, just his particular people. It's important to keep that perspective, because the words which he's about to expound upon not only come with authority, but they're meant for each individual Israelite to not only listen, but also to be held accountable to obeying his word. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the believer today held to the same standard? Are you sure? Not just for Israel. No, it's for us today. What do we know? James 1, verse 22, right? It's a, it's a good one to turn to. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. God's word is clear. Believers today still need to view God as, God's word as his special revelation We still need to view it as inspired, which means literally God-breathed. We still need to view it as without error and sufficient. We still need to view it as giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And so obedience and reverence towards God's word is just a timeless principle, which still applies to the believer today. Some other helpful information to share in those first five verses before we move on to our next point is Moses is really just reminding Israel of something, that the journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea was really only 11 days' journey. Okay? Why, why even bring this up? Why? Well, he's making an important point. Simply, what should have taken a week and four days took 40 years, people. Okay? Of wandering in that desert terrain due to their disobedience. And so, in other words, there was a more direct route (laughs) to Kadesh Barnea. But as we've already learned from Numbers, because of the previous generation's wickedness, they wandered in the desert, counting the faces. This is how I remember what Numbers is about. They counted the faces for 40 years. And once again, the new generation, and by extension, all of us, 
learned that the sin of unbelief is really the main driver at the heart level of stubbornness, rebelliousness. Um, And so Moses is just taking the time to help them guard their hearts by reminding this new generation that their history was important and they needed to learn from it. They needed to learn from their history, especially if they want to avoid the same massive punishment of their forefathers. That second picture is Kadesh Barnea, just so you could get a view of it. This is where um, the Israelites encamped after their departure from Mount Sinai. It's interesting to see a picture of it. It looks pretty lush. But it appears that, according to Todd Bolin, that the Israelites began and ended their years of wandering at this site. So good for you to see it. So we've spent time thinking through the importance of investing in the next generation. Um, In verses 1 to 5, we recognize that Moses is exhorting the Israelites to learn from their history. And although this passage is only considered the preamble or the introduction to Deuteronomy, it's so much more than that because it's part of redemptive history. And it really gives you a glimpse of how God moved his people along, moved his people along into the mission and the purpose that he has set before them, before the foundation of the world, I might add. Right? And so we need to remember the theme of the Pentateuch, which is what? Land, seed, blessing. Israel will be God's people, and he will let them dwell in the land. And that brings us to point number two, which is preparation or insight from the past. As Moses continues to exhort the second generation to remember their history by giving them insight into their past... Chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 3 simply highlights for us how God has been faithful to Israel and how their history really has been rolled out up to this point so that this new generation will be motivated toward renewing their covenant with God before they enter into the promised land. So we're going to take a closer look at how Moses begins his sermon in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, Yahweh our God spoke to us at Horeb. So I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) This is really important for you to see something here. Do you notice that he uh, uses, uh, well, I should probably, let me start over. I I should explain something really extraordinary. The title Yahweh, or Lord our God in verse 6, is common in the book of Deuteronomy. But it's rare in the rest of the Pentateuch. I don't know if if you discovered that on your own. And I really think this is part of Moses' strategy to motivate Or in biblical counseling, we call it induce. To motivate or induce the people to not only listen, but also to obey. So what is Moses saying about God here that ought to motivate them to obey? He uses that plural pronoun for God. That first pronoun he uses is Yahweh. And what does it communicate to the new generation and by extension to all of us? It communicates that God, Yahweh, he is eminent. He is perfect. He is holy, um, and, and he is gracious to his people. And that second pronoun that Moses uses is the title Elohim, and that focuses more on God's power and his supremacy over all of his creation. And so by using that title or that double pronoun for God, Moses is just desiring to emphasize the covenant relationship that God has with his people and God's authority over them. If the people are going to listen and obey God, it's going to start with how they view God from the heart, is it not? If they believe he is who he says he is, 
then the hope is, is that Israel would be motivated to fear, to love, to serve, and to walk in his ways keep, and, and to keep his commandments. That's all of chapter 10. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that was all of chapter 10. Truths that Moses emphasizes. But it's no different today. The responses of your heart will always be in line with how you view the Lord. That's a really important truth for you to take in. Because if you have a high view of God, then you will trust and obey. You will. Even in the most difficult days of your life, if you notice you don't wither under the heat, you're like that tree planted by streams of water that Psalm 1 talks about. But if you have a low view of God, you're more apt to trust who? Self. Yes. And, and you're more apt or tempted to fall into that peril of the sin of unbelief. And as we know, the previous generation of Israel had a low view of God. And according to Numbers 13, verse 9, verse 9, the people rebelled against the Lord because they feared that the people that were living in the promised land at that time, um, and failed to, they failed to believe and embrace from the heart that the Lord would be with them. They also failed to believe that he was their power and their strength and their Lord, right? And so, in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's just amazing how Moses really begins to reveal for us a lot of character about the Lord. For example, he talks a lot about how the God is not only Yahweh, but he's also the only God. Um, he talks about how God is a jealous God, how God is faithful and loving and merciful and angered by sin. Raphael. And that is the God that Israel, that God called Israel to himself and is the same God that has called you to himself by his grace. So allow me to encourage you to guard your hearts with all diligence by nurturing a high view of God from his word. Additionally, um, we learn in verse 6, as Moses is retelling Israel's history, that the journey began in Horeb. And that's where God spoke to the Israelites and instructed them on what their mission would be. So what was the mission? Well, part of it is just carrying out the Abrahamic covenant to bless the world as a nation. That was part of the mission. Um, The other part of the mission was God just moving them forward towards the end goal, which was always to enter into this promised land. But as we've already learned from Numbers, the previous generation had failed in that mission and had disobeyed God. And so now the hope is that this new generation would understand that they're going to go into the land and they need to take possession of it without fear of their enemies. And you know what? You get a sense of that. We got a sense of that when Moses starts talking about these, these successful campaign against these two enemies, right? They, they were successful in this battle with Sihon of the Amorites who ruled from Heshbon and, and Og, King Og of Ashan. You read about that victory, um, more in detail, it was kind of in chapter 2 through chapter 3. And, and really the narrative, really the point of it is to, is to just show you God's faithfulness as he gave the people victory at that time um, on the eastern side of the Jordan. It gave them assurance that they could actually conquer <laughs> these enemies and they could enter into the promised land. It also demonstrates that God was way far more for Israel then he was against Israel in judging them. Um, and it also points out that God, um, with God's help, they could live up to the role to take the promised land if they would fight any fear of man that they have with fear of God, really. It's important. 
But the rest of chapter 1, 7 to 46, it's really just a, a, a retelling of Numbers 13 to 14. Did you notice that? It's just a retelling, as if we need to hear it again. It's a retelling, you know. Um, and aside from the victories that you read about regarding these two enemy kings, we're also reminded in chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, that Moses, too, sadly, was prevented from crossing the Jordan into the promised land by God. Um, You'll recall that Moses pleaded with God to let him go and to see the land that was beyond the Jordan. But God was angry with Moses, wasn't he? Um, On the account of what? This rebellion that happened in Kadesh Barnea. You'll, You'll recall he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it. And so he was sinning in that moment in unbelief. Because what, what did he forget to do? See God as holy. That's right. So God would not listen to him. Instead, he had Moses go to the top part of Mount Pisgah and look to the north and the south and the east and the west, giving Moses just a chance at least to see the region with his eyes. God also told Moses to commission Joshua and to strengthen him as well as encourage him because Joshua was going to lead the people across the Jordan to this inherited land. And honestly, it must have been incredibly sad for Moses. I mean, can you just sense the pain there? I mean, how hard that must have been. But it sure gives us a glimpse into the seriousness of sin, does it not? I mean, yes, I'm sure he was repentant. We, we believe that. But there's always consequences, is there not, for sin? So thinking through that, and that kind of ties in nicely with our last point, which is principles. Inhabiting the land of promise with stipulations. By way of introduction, let's go ahead and look at chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first two verses for you. So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I'm teaching you to do, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Okay. Well, what's important to note here is that Moses uses the phrase, so now. So that denotes something in the text. Uh, Moses is moving on now from the lessons that Israel can learn from their past to how they must proceed in their present state. So now we've got a new discourse here. And Moses begins with a command that is meant to seek uh, the second generation's attention. And so, in essence, he's saying, now, O Israel, listen! (laughs) You know, Um, and this phrase comes up again in chapter 5. It comes up in chapter 6 when we study the Shema. But the word listen in the Hebrew doesn't just require Israel to hear or to know, but also to do. God's desire is that this new generation not only pay close attention, but they do it with a heart that seeks to obey the statutes and the judgments that Moses was about to teach them to perform as they head into the promised land. So by paying close attention, they will understand how to live it, right? Heed the word. But not only that, there is also a need to put it into practice. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And you know what? We're taught that way in the New Testament, aren't we? So I'm thinking of like Philippians 4 as an example of what he's saying. You'll know that it, you'll remember that in verse 6, we understand that we're being exhorted to be anxious for nothing. That's a pretty straightforward command. But Paul takes it a step further and gives the how of not being anxious by having right praying. 
We also know from verse 6 that he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, we're to lift those prayer requests up, make them known to God. But he doesn't stop there. He also talks about right thinking. And that comes in verse 8, when we are to think on things that are what? True and lovely and of good reputation. Things that are just uh, excellent. But not only that, he also commands you in that passage to have right practice. In verse 9, he says, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things. And all with the view of having a right awareness of God, because Paul also brings out two very important um, attributes of God, which is the fact that he is near or omnipresent, and he's also a God of peace. And so it is with this new generation. They were to pay close attention to the statutes and the judgments which Moses was about to expound upon with a view in their heart towards action and a right awareness of who Yahweh was and is continuing to be. He is with them. He is guiding them along the whole way, and his nearness is their good. Is he not? He's our good too, for sure. They are also exhorted, as we are in Scripture, not to add or take away from his word. For Israel, their obedience to God and his word would become their wisdom before the pagan nations in the promised land as God's law made Israel a unique and great nation. She is set apart and would be different because she has the oracles of God. And so this new generation was to hear the word with the view of obeying the word. And that resolve is what would set Israel apart from the other um, pagan nations. Um, and, And it's the same with us as well. As believers, as in Christ ones, are we not set apart? Are we not chosen? Are we not beloved? Are we not forgiven? It's the same. It's the same. Well, the rest of the outline for Deuteronomy 5 to 11 really kind of includes more of an exposition of the general stipulations given to Israel, and they're broken down into the following categories. So I'll give you an overview of that because obviously I can't cover everything. But first, in chapter 5, what are you given? You're just given a reiteration of what? Ten Commandments and how Moses interceded. We already studied the Decalogue, right, in Exodus 20. But your lesson gave you an opportunity to to read through that again, to summarize it. And then what I'm going to do next week is I'm just going to expound on that a little bit more because chapters 12 to 26, that's all it is. It's an expounding on the Ten Commandments. And so we'll get into that. In chapter 6, you read about some key commands, which include the Shema, which is a prayer that encourages the new generation to have total commitment to the Lord. In chapter 7, you read about more exhortations or warnings to be separate from the gods of other nations and essentially taught to love God by what one hates. In chapter 8, you read about the warnings against forgetting the Lord, thereby teaching this timeless truth of loving God by not being proud. In chapter 9 to 10, that's more reflections and illustrations of Israel's rebellion continuing to teach us what it means to love God by guarding our hearts against self-righteousness. And then finally, we're given some final admonitions in chapters 10 and 11 by Moses to fear and love the Lord and obey his will. So which one do I pick? Which one do I expound on? You know, I had to really think through that. So I decided that I'm going to teach on the Shema because um, the Shema is an important um, thing for us to understand because it helps us to understand the heart behind the motivation of the law. 
right, as well as our obedience to Yahweh. So go ahead and turn to chapter 6. Follow along as I read. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So although the new generation was to learn and understand the statutes and judgments, which stand for the whole of the law, Moses is also helping this new generation to learn and understand one particular law that will in essence express the spirit of the covenant. So in other words, should Israel keep this one commitment, this one commandment, that he's about to introduce, Israel will learn how to fear Yahweh, and this heart attitude will be essential in genuine obedience. Which, and so what is that, you know, which is really just to listen and to obey. So what is that singular command that Israel is to hear and obey? It's in verse 4. Look at it again. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with your whole heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Of course, we know that is a Shema, and it's, it's traditionally a declaration of faith in God, and it is a command that Israel was to hear, which means, in essence, they're to pay careful attention to that which is essential to their survival, and Jews today still recite this. They recite it twice a day when they rise up and when they lie down, and they traditionally say it covering their eyes to show reverence. I'll say it in Hebrew for you. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. So they say it that way. But did you notice something when I said that? Did you hear me say Yahweh? You heard me say Adonai, right? That's an interesting thing um, because for the Jewish person today, pronouncing Yahweh is actually sinful for them. It's hard for them to do that. Instead, they use Adonai, um, which is just a word for Lord instead in their prayers. But you know what? Yahweh is God's name for himself. It's not sinful to say his name. We're going to learn a little bit more about that in a moment. So why is the Shema so essential for this new generation to heed as they prepare to enter the promised land? Well, primarily because they needed to embrace the view that Yahweh is one. So what do I mean by that? He's not divided. He is one being with one essence. Abner commenting on the Shema says, if one counted how many Yahwehs there are, there would only be one, <laughs> right? If, and, and so this title for Yahweh is just promoting the idea that Yahweh is unique. He is exclusive. He is one in essence. Um, this new generation needed to understand that Yahweh does not share his glory with another. Um, and so he should never be confused for any other god as they head into the promised land. And this understanding of God would be so foundational because the new generation was about to enter a land that's just full of all kinds of deities that the pagan nations worshipped. And so one way they can guard their hearts is to embrace the important doctrine that Yahweh, their God, is one Yahweh. And Jesus saw it as a foundational truth as well. It was important um, for him to express that to us as he ministered on earth. Um, in Mark 12, 28 to 29, 
He was asked a question by a scholar of the law. What is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus answered in this way. The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the scholar replied to Jesus, and he said this, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. Again, pointing to the uniqueness and the exclusivity and the oneness of Yahweh. Going back to Deuteronomy 6, in verse 4, Moses is really just hoping that this proclamation of the Lord's unique oneness would motivate Israel to act upon it by their love of him. In other words, to obey God is to love God. That's how they and we are to treat Yahweh, who is one. And that word Moses uses for love in verse 5, it's not so much an emotion as it's really more an obligation to obey The depth of their love would encompass the whole being of their person. It includes their heart, which is that seat of your emotions, right? And your thinking. It encompasses your soul, which which kind of refers more to the will of a person. And it might and it it even includes their might, which is just the physical strength. And so you kind of get that body-soul connection. And so as this new generation prepares to go into the promised land, as one scholar put it, they were to love Yahweh with all of their essence and their expression, you know? And you know what? Jesus connects love with obedience as well. It's carried through. In Matthew 22, verse 39, when he, was, he, commanded, the, when he commanded the disciples to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he also said in, in John fifteen ten, if you com- keep my commandments, you'll abide in what? My love. You'll abide in my love. In other words, obeying or keeping the commandments of Christ results in abiding or remaining in Jesus' love. So the commandments to love Yahweh with all has to be on the hearts of Israel, or we could say committed to their memory. And who are they to impress it upon? The next generation. Why? Simply put, so they would not forget. So they would not forget who they are, which is a member of the covenant community, and so that they wouldn't forget that it was the Lord who was responsible for all of the good things that they're going to experience in the new land. God, not Israel, was the source of all that blessing. And so Moses warns the next generation Do not forget. All right? So let me wrap this up. I'll give you some application just to be helpful here. Is there something that we can learn from Israel's history that it's important for us to consider? Absolutely. I believe there is. And so we're going to just kind of end our time by looking at 1 Corinthians 10. If you want to turn there, you got an opportunity to read through the whole uh, passage 1 to 14 from your lesson, which I really appreciated. Um, and I, but I wanted to take time just to expound on a couple of things. According to Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the judgments that Israel experienced in the wilderness were a result of their obedience or disobedience, which is an example for the new generation that we learned about, as well as for us today, that we should not crave evil things as the previous generation did. 
Um, you'll recall also in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, 1 to 14, that Paul highlights four major sins that Israel really struggled with. They struggled with the sin of idolatry, the sin of immorality, the sin of trying the Lord, for sure, and the sin of grumbling and complaining. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? Grumbling and complaining, really? <laughs> so Paul says that was written for our instruction today, or we could say our warning today. Right? Ladies, even though we no longer live under the Mosaic Covenant, and even though we're in Christ and we can't lose our salvation, we can still fall easily into disobedience. And we can sin like they did when you fail to guard your heart against pride and unbelief. It's so easy in the world today, I think, to be self-sufficient, to be overly confident in yourself. And Israel certainly was. They're an example of that. The Corinthian believers certainly were. They're an example of that as well. So why do we think this side of heaven that we're not going to be tempted in the same way? Right? What does verse 12 say? Look there. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In other words, we need to remember something. We need to remember to humble ourselves by not forgetting who you are in Christ. And 1 Corinthians goes on to talk about remembering that you were bought at a price, right? That you're no longer your own, that you're called to love God by obeying him, serving him, and others in the body for his glory. And that mindset requires true humility of mind because it's centered on Christ and his people, not self. But not only do we guard our hearts by remembering who we are, but also by considering what Paul says in verse 13. It's a common biblical counseling. For your biblical counselors out there, you're going to rejoice that I'm going to read this. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So this side of heaven, right, we're all going to be tempted in one way or another, are we not? But no temptation is stronger than the spiritual resources that God has given you in Christ. In this case, Paul is focusing on God and his faithfulness. God remains faithful to, remained faithful to the children of Israel, and he remains faithful to us as well when we, like they, crave evil things. And so you can look to God's faithfulness. As a spiritual resource, like Jesus did in Matthew 6, verse 13, when he actually went to God the Father in prayer and he asked him to deliver us from temptation, right? Also, from verse 13, the way of escape is not ignoring things. It's not wishing it away. It's not avoiding it. But rather, we're called to endure through it in the Father's power, Practically speaking, we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and through prayer, we can cast our anxieties upon him, believing some important things about God. Not only that he's faithful, but that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and he cares for you. He cares for you. So by God's grace, we can choose, because we're in Christ, to trust God by believing that he will help us. And he has allowed these trials or temptations for our good, okay, good, and his glory, 
And of course, Christ is our example who endured far more things in his humanity than we could ever imagine. So he understands your trials, he understands your temptations, and he's able to help you endure through them. So ladies of EWG, beloved ladies, beloved sisters in Christ, um, I hope I've accomplished my goal this morning because my goal was to invest in each one of you um, and, and just to remind you of a few things. First, that the Lord our God, the triune God, is one Lord, and we need to love him with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and and with all of our strength. Secondly, Israel's history reminds us of our own sin. You know, we need to think about that. It reminds us of God's patience with us, right, and his great faithfulness to fortify us to obey him today. And so may Yahweh be praised for his enabling grace in your life that helps you to love him by walking in a manner worthy of his calling. Let me pray for you. Oh, great God, thank you for your word. For it indeed gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. We're so blessed. And so we thank you even this morning for the great reminder that you alone, Lord, You alone are great. You alone are unique. You're exclusive. You're faithful. You're holy. There is no other God like you. Thank you that we get the privilege of learning more about you as we read about your interactions with your people, Israel. And help us, Lord, today as your people to guard our hearts against unbelief. Help us uh, to that end because we desire to be faithful by your grace, to love you with a whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to obey out of love for you. We also desire to pass on these truths about you to the next generation, Lord. We think about our children and our grandbabies, how, how we want to be so faithful in that, in that way. Um, so bless us now, though, as we head into our small groups. May the richness of the lesson encourage the ladies' hearts towards love and good deeds so that they may never forget you and your wondrous deeds. And I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.